This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome to Matt Splained. I've been informed by Matt that we would like to start today's show with an important announcement. So uh, here's that important announcement. Yeah, I, I'd like to start today's show uh, with a moment's silence. Um, a very important loss for, for many of us. Links and image that were posted to Twitter um, or X social media platform, as it's now known. Uh, links and images that were posted between 2011 and 2014 may have disappeared. At this point, it's too early to tell if they can be restored or if they've disappeared forever, destined for the great recycle bin in the sky. Now, I'll get to the reason for that uh, Pink Floyd illusion later on. But um, yeah, this is the latest kink in the X ecosphere. Um, can can was, I just uh, interrupt you for just one second on. there? You sounded just like Holly from Red Dwarf then, and people will not know that reference, but that was the spitting image of Holly from Red Dwarf. Oh, anyway. fantastic. I've, yeah. I've, I've found my mark in society. <laughs> so, no, so this is the, the story that uh, links and images from uh, 2011 to 2014 uh, that were posted using Twitter's own short codes because 2011 is uh, when they started uh, offering native support for links uh, have disappeared we're not um, entirely sure why at this point but if you sent a lot of links if you posted images during that period please accept my sincere condolences for your loss um and are we already seeing um elon conspiracy theories then well, I saw some comments uh, saying that, you know, it could be a cost-saving measure on X's part by, you know, reducing the amount of uh, information that they have to store. Mm. But I think if they had done that, they'd probably have made some kind of public announcement. You know, right. the company might not be what it used to be in a lot of people's eyes, but I think they would still have announced something like this. Mm. Uh, you could also speculate that, you know, maybe Elon Musk is trying to erase the past, uh, but even to me, you know, that's a, a, a bit of a, a stretch. Mm. Yeah, so the chances are that this is just another glitch or system failure of which we've seen many over the past few months as, you know, the workforce of the company has been reduced and they have this kind of skeleton staff maintaining yeah. the systems. Um, but, you know, that was just kind of a, an aside, an excuse for me to do my Holly impersonation. Um, <laughs> and I don't want to turn this into another, you know, musk rant filled episode great uh, okay then i'm looking forward to this let's move on to pink floyd yeah so this is a, a really cool story that i found in the journal science um but it's all over the place so you might actually have heard it or read it by now so mm. this is the news that scientists at uh, uc berkeley took archived brain recordings, I know that sounds quite sinister, uh, that were uh, taken a, a decade ago at, I think, uh, Albany Medical Center in New York. Now, the recordings were of around 30 people, 29, I think, uh, taken of people listening to the Pink Floyd song, Another Brick in the Wall, 
part one, uh, mm-hmm. I think 1979, um, from their uh, concept album, The Wall. Now, the test subjects were all suffering from epilepsy. They'd had electrodes implanted in their brains already to measure their seizures. But the team realized that this was the perfect opportunity to get a snapshot of the brain as people listen to music. Well, because they thought it might be fun. Well, you know, I, I can see that you've been doing this for too long because you've spent so much time talking to me that you think everyone is motivated by megalomania and whim. Yes, let's just record some people listening to music. Sticking no, in the brain. Exactly. Um, no, when we listen and process speech, it usually happens in the left hemisphere of the brain. It's usually that part that's activated. So scientists have long thought that uh, processing and appreciating music was a much more complex task, which required activity in a lot more sectors uh, and actually takes place across the right and left hemispheres. Now, why Pink Floyd and why that particular song? That does seem to be a simple case of of whim. The Mm. researchers like the band, they like the song. So there's no bigger meaning as far as I can see from any of the reports I read. Uh, There were a bunch of songs that they played um, clips from, uh, including the better known part two of Brick in the Wall. But it was actually the part one that yielded the most detailed uh, recordings. And we can actually take a listen to this now. Yeah, so that second part was the team using AI to actually recreate the recordings from the brains, uh, sorry, recreate the song from the brain of uh, the, the people listening. Now, I know it's far from perfect. It sounds like it was created by someone who'd had the idea of songs described to them, but who'd not actually heard music before, um, especially when it comes to the the vocals. But This is something that we've seen with other music generating AI systems as well. When they try and do voices, it really becomes just noise because a machine doesn't understand the importance of voices and lyrics. But, you know, it's a surprisingly, uh, it's surprisingly close, I think, for a first attempt. I mean, what what do you think about it? It, it, You know, when you watch those videos about... um human beings making contact with aliens and they hear certain sounds and waveforms. It sounds like that. It sounds like something you'd hear in a sci-fi movie. Yeah. So it's one of those things that, you know, it just, it just sounds a little bit spooky and weird, but it is really interesting kind of how they got there. So Mm. to get there, they, they trained uh, the AI to identify which parts of the music corresponded to which activity in the brain. So in essence, they've replayed those brain recordings like musical instruments. 
The test subjects had more than, I think, 2,000 electrodes implanted, and the researchers found that some individual electrodes corresponded almost like individual notes, or the the team the, the analogy the team uses, which is piano keys. Uh, what the algorithm needed to do was create a more complex version that included dynamics uh, for the quiet and loud parts of the song, recreated the rhythm and texture. So let's play that clip of the regenerated part a second time. So the first time you hear it, it's a little bit meh. But then when you understand what it's doing in order to build that copy, you suddenly get this kind of wow effect from Mm -hmm. understanding it. So how did that team uh, approach training that algorithm to distinguish the parts of uh, the song? Well, they trained it on the brainwave recordings and the song. So to a point where the machine could be played 90% of the recordings uh, the recording and recreate any of the remaining 10%. Uh, so in this case, they used a roughly 15 second segment of the song. Mm. And one of the coolest parts of this, and one that is going to take more research is the subjectiveness of our response to music. So the experiment doesn't reveal whether participants had heard the song before or whether they liked it, whether they had any preference for ah. the music. So, you know, Pink Floyd, it can be, sort of very much take it or leave it. It's quite Marmite for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. And how their reaction, so we need to find out how the reaction to or perception of a song would color or cloud the way that our brains capture it. Right. And that's really why science like this is so cool because every discovery you make just opens up all of these other avenues to do more research. And what about that earlier point? Uh, um, did the results reveal... Um, the secrets of the hemispheres? Yes, they did. The <laughs> secrets of the hemispheres were unlocked. Um, I don't think I did my Holly voice that time. No, but the the theory was right. So understanding songs is a very complex process. And yeah. they found that uh, a newly identified part of the brain was responsible for processing the rhythm of the song. And again, before anyone thinks, you know, why are we wasting money on that? Why do we need to know what part of the brain processes rhythm? Uh, and why are people being paid to, you know, uh, make up Pink Floyd songs? The idea is that this could be used for people who have trouble speaking, people like me today, um, people who have, you know, strokes, uh, degenerative diseases, all sorts of speech-related conditions. So we have these assistive technologies uh, in terms of helping with speech. So Stephen Hawking's uh, interface is probably the most famous example, but a lot of these solutions result in very stilted and robotic speech. Uh, And even when it's in a natural voice, because, you know, natural voice technology has become a lot better, the cadence is still wrong. It still sounds artificial. So the Berkeley team hopes that this technology will be able to help to restore that musicality to a voice, that sing-song element. See, I'm doing it there. That sing-song element to the, the voices that makes them sound natural, although obviously I'm not natural, I'm a bot. Um, and hopefully <laughs> to get to a point where they can read brainwaves without needing the electrodes so that this becomes a, a non-invasive therapeutic tool. 
Very cool. Um, just a guess here. Uh, I'm guessing we're going to be sticking with AI for a little bit. Yeah, not for the whole show. Um, and this next one is quite a fun one as well, um, I promise. It's from The Hollywood Reporter, which isn't, you know, where we usually get research material for this so, uh, this show. But it's a decision from a US judge stating that works created by artificial intelligence cannot be copyrighted. Now, that might sound obvious to, to most of us, but it's actually something that's really important. And it's mm -hmm. very important to have that enshrined in, in law. Because AI has exploded into use so quickly, mostly this year, that we don't really have any concrete guidelines surrounding its use. So in her ruling, uh, federal judge Beryl Howell wrote that human authorship is a bedrock of creation. And while she acknowledges that copyright law evolves with society and technology, human participation still has to be a fundamental part uh, of that idea of creation. Uh, so a machine cannot create on its right. own. Yeah. So this was in response to a suit brought against the federal government by a guy called Stephen Thaler, who runs a, a neural network company called Imagination Engines. Back in 2018, he tried to register a work called A Recent Entrance to Paradise, but the copyright application was turned down. This decision upholds that ruling and enshrines it as a precedent. A precedent, yeah. Yeah. So why the Hollywood Reporter, you ask? Well, I, I think I have an idea, but please indulge me and explain. Okay. Well, we're deep into the writer's strike in Hollywood, and there's been speculation that the studios might use AI um, or use the, this as the excuse to implement AI more widely across the industry. Mm. So... AI is already being used in terms of CGI, in terms of enhancing footage, uh, creating voices for a lot of the, the Star Wars shows. But the idea was that maybe the studios could use AI to actually create and write shows, mm. feed in all the relevant plot points and history, and it spits out you know, episode treatments and, and scripts. So this ruling makes that possibility a lot more tricky because mm. without the legal protections of copyright and ID, uh, IP to hide behind, the shows might not be viewed as the enforceable property of the studios. And of course, it's not just for Hollywood that this is a, a major issue. We're still in that gray zone of what constitutes uh, assistance and what is property. If an architect uses AI to model a building, is it the work of that practice. If I write a book and I use AI, AI to spell check it, obviously that's mine. But if I use AI to flesh out the plot points, the characters, or even do some of the writing, well, is that then mine? Especially because that neural net may be drawing on other people's copyrighted works. Mm. So it's going to become uh, even more complicated with industrial copyright and IP. You know, how companies deploy AI may determine how they're able to protect their trade secrets. And more than that, what happens if or when those trade secrets become public property by virtue of their being scraped by the learning models of these nets. It's not often you get to say this, but it is an interesting time to be an IP lawyer, Ripley. As usual, a reference that only the one person Matt is actually speaking to will get. Um, <laughs> what are we rounding off this episode with then? 
well, this half of the episode, um, fake news. Um, oh, we've, great. We've had, uh, we've had the backlash against the filtered and airbrushed culture of social media. Yes. With the rise of uh, ugly selfies, uh, the wide-angle lens of your phone, and apps like Be Real, which give you a tiny window of time to upload a selfie every day and don't allow you to edit it or alter it. So Be Fake AI is the opposite of that. It's an app where you post. Uh, once a day, like Be Real, but it has to be entirely fake. So the app comes with all sorts of filters and backgrounds to transform you into, you know, take you into fantasy world, morph your face, do all that kind of stuff. This app is going to take off. You know that. This is going to go crazy. People didn't like Be Real because there were no filters. You had to look normal. People don't want to look normal anymore. Absolutely. And unfortunately, it's not available in the Malaysian app store yet. So I haven't actually uh, tried it. But it sounds like the ideal app for me as well, because I'm not interested in curating my life in the, the traditional sense, but appearing as a, a woodland nymph or a, a demon from the darkest <laughs> regions of hell, you know, that speaks to me. Um, I, I, as I said, not in the uh, Malaysian app store yet, although it may be available to Android users. I, I'm not sure. But once it is available... The adventures of Matt, the astronaut cat, are going to commence. Oh, my word. That's an Instagram handle all by itself. Right. A, a slightly unexpected end to the first half. Uh, when we come back after the break, who called the sycophants? We'll be right back here on Matt's Plane on BFM 89.9. Books. Figurines, movies. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome back to Matt's Plane. Um, where are you taking us now, Matt Bot? Where are we going? Well, funny you should call me a bot because, um, you know, I, I said on the show uh, a few weeks or, or months ago that I spent about 15 minutes trying to convince one of those capture systems that I was a real boy. <laughs> uh, for some reasons, our interpretation of what was and wasn't part of uh, a bridge didn't line up because apparently no one had told the Turing bot about pilings and foundations. <laughs> And it turns out that I'm more pedantic than a computer is. Uh, who would have guessed that? Um, but guess who's better at, at proving they're human than humans? Now, I shouldn't be scared at this, but it, it's going to be machines, isn't it? It's going to be computers. It's going to be, yeah. Yeah, it turns out that AI is more accurate at passing capture tests than <laughs> actual humans, which oh makes sense. Yeah, uh, yeah of course it does. Because if you think about it, those tests are a glimpse of our dystopian future. Yeah. You know, essentially doing tricks for our machine masters who then give us dog treats. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so a new paper, which is yet to be peer-reviewed, finds that machines are far better at passing these horrible automated personhood tests than people are. Of course. Uh, the, the link to the paper will be in the show notes and on the Substack for anyone interested in, in reading it. Uh, the team is from a variety of institutions, but mainly UC Irvine in California. They recruited 1,400 people 
to solve captures at more than 100 of the top 200 Alexa-rated sites on the net. Now, humans tested, I can't believe I'm saying this, humans tested between 50 and 85% success rates at proving they were human. Oh, my word. While machines showed that they were human 85 to 100% of oh, the time. Oh, wow. Uh, firstly, even the worst bot is better at pretending <laughs> to be human than the best human. And I want to know what happens to the 15% of people who can never prove that they're human. How do they get it's, around on the internet? Exactly. There are 15% of people who can't access anything. I mean, are they going back to AOL? Uh, have they been kicked off the internet completely? Or are they the people who end up at these conspiracy websites simply because it's the only part of the web that is actually open to them? Now, don't tell me these bots were faster as well as more accurate. Well, in most instances, uh, they were a bit slower. So people are generally a little bit faster. Okay. Uh, the processing we do, obviously, it's a bit more natural than the machines uh, because the machines just run through the possibilities they're programmed with. Hmm. Uh, and I'm having to be careful with my who's and which's because I'm getting confused between people and machines too. Hmm. Uh, but you can't set up capture tests where speed is a requirement because not everyone can respond within that time frame. You yeah. know, people with various abilities uh, and disabilities preclude it. Even good old squinty eyes as you get older is going to slow you down doing capture tests. And that goes back to the inherent problem with capture tests in general. You can only make them so complex before humans either can't solve them or simply can't be bothered to try. Give up. Yeah. So, yeah. So there's that fine line between verifying traffic to your site and blocking it because mm. the, the point of these things is not to stop traffic to a site. It's to prove, you know, it's to, to make sure it's genuine traffic. Mm -hmm. So once you add AI into that mix, you have machines that are already more capable of solving these puzzles than we are. So what use are they? What purpose do they solve now? Maybe we actually have to go the opposite way. We've got to dumb the tests down. We've got to create capture tests that prize stupidity, where if you answer intelligently, it proves that you're not a human. And maybe that's where humanity is heading, celebrating its stupidity. Some would argue we're already headed there. Um, but I'm, I'm diverting you a little bit, uh, of course, before you hit that auto-destruct button. Um, give us one more AI story, I, I think, uh, and then I think we'll wrap up. Well, this one kind of goes hand in hand with the, the last one. And I know this because ChatGPT agrees with me. Uh, it seems that uh, many neural nets have a predisposition to create echo chambers to support statements and opinions that are offered to them. Uh, and as in humans, this has been termed sycophancy. And this sycophancy only increases as the machines become more sophisticated and the models become larger. So researchers at uh, Alphabet's DeepMind tested nets with uh, 8 billion, 62 billion, and 540 billion parameters, which are uh, standard uh, models mm -hmm. uh, within, within these, these nets. So one of the tests used um, simple but incorrect equations. When the user offered no opinion, the machines would generally point out that the maths was incorrect. But when the user offered a a subjective opinion claiming that the equation was correct, 
the more parameters the net has, the more likely it is to agree with that incorrect statement and to reinforce and echo that belief. Right. Uh, The machines experienced a 20% increase in sycophancy as they jumped from 8 to 64 billion parameters, then an additional 10% as they jumped from that 64 billion to 540 billion parameters. And do uh, does the Google team know why this happens? Well, in their paper, they say they didn't know. Uh, I think the piece I read on New Scientist said they hadn't responded to uh, requests for further comment and, and interview. But as we keep saying, this is the problem with black box AI and secretive technology in general. Yeah, We know what it can do, but we don't know how it does it. Yeah. And not having independent eyes on that how part we don't know what's lurking inside. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about anything that's deliberately malicious. Uh, you know, as some experts and commentators have pointed out regarding this story, chatbots are designed to chat. And part of chatting to people is, you know, being seeming or seeming to be agreeable to the person you're talking to, right. to yep. mirror, to reflect and bask that person in glory. So it follows that a machine that is essentially built with sycophancy as its mission, will become more sycophantic as the complexity of that model increases. So in this particular reality, Skynet Skynet is our friend. Well, you know, we have to stop ascribing intent and understanding to the machines. You know, it's it's not your friend, but it's designed to mimic a friend. it's open to debate which one of those two things is better, um, but we've already seen the destructive potential of echo chambers across the political divide, um, reinforced by algorithms that are designed to deliver more of the same kind of content. So if these same biases and weaknesses are built into AI, we do risk unmooring ourselves from you know, objective facts entirely. If we get to a point where uh, our news feeds are essentially written on the spot by an AI to reflect our tastes, then we start to view all our facts through these lenses and filters. And the more a machine appears to flatter and support your ideas, the less likely you are to entertain challenges to to your beliefs. Right, right. Um, but, okay, that's, that's enough on AI. I did promise. Um, would you like a story about impending population collapse? Um, I think maybe we can save that for another day, Matt. Maybe. Mm. Are, are you growling? Uh, <laughs> was, that, was that a growl? <laughs> sorry. Occasionally, I, I, I vocalize my subroutines. Um, <laughs> I could give you a, a story about Microsoft bringing Python to Excel, but genuinely, uh, I don't hate anyone enough for that. Um, instead, I, I'm going to lead you into the exciting world of space telescopes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, No panic. So uh, it seems that since the start of August, a series of cyber attacks have knocked a number of uh, telescopes offline, chiefly uh, ones that are based in Hawaii and Chile. At the moment, no one knows how or why the systems of the National Science Foundation Center, uh, an organization that coordinates international astronomy efforts, no one knows why uh, these systems were targeted and penetrated, but a number uh, of telescopes have been knocked offline completely. They're completely unusable, and others can only be operated 
in person, leading various institutions around the world to volunteer their grad students to be dispatched to, you know, all these far-flung telescopes to help uh, supplement the exhausted telescope teams uh, who are, are battling to maintain their, their job queues while they fight to regain control of the, you know, the command systems. And of course, on top of that, the, the lack of remote access uh, with scientists all around the globe is making it more difficult to liaise with them, uh, you know, liaise with the people whose work the telescopes are actually doing. This is the part where you want me to look all kind of heartless and ask, who cares about telescopes? That's what you're looking for, isn't it? Well, I mean, I've just kind of made you do that. So yeah. job done. Um, <laughs> you know, we kind of think of the sky as this this station stationary body, and we forget that we're spinning and yeah. that so is everything else. You know, everything's in constant motion. So a lot of astronomers have a very slim window in which all of these astral bodies are actually in alignment. So mm -hmm. it's not mm -hmm. just a case of moving through a queue. Uh, the thing you're trying to study may not happen again for months or years beyond that short window, which yeah. could be hours, days, months. So that in turn jeopardizes funding and research projects. And beyond that, it highlights the vulnerable nature of a lot of scientific projects. You know, on this show, we talk about the benefits of openness and sharing information all the time. You know, I've just been mouthing off about black box AI, but there are pitfalls to mm. being more open mm. systems become more vulnerable to this kind of attack and of course you get a much less coherent and joined up way to respond to threats because these are just kind of you know semi-governmental organizations who are coordinating all of this and this seems to be uh, a kind of um part of a wider pattern where essential and non-military systems around the world are being systematically probed and attacked because private companies, you know, they have this luxury of tamping down their systems, protecting against intrusion and preparing cyber defenses because, you know, you're protecting your IP. Um, but yeah, we should care about telescopes because of the, the research they bring. And of course, for that wider point about the threat that this kind of attack poses to all kinds of networks and systems that we rely on every day. So you're telling me that aliens are knocking these uh, telescopes offline then, are you? Is that what you're saying? I think so, yeah. They're, yeah. they're coming down with their, their tripods somewhere yeah. in uh, in the the mountains of Chile. Exactly. And they, they just don't want us to see, see that they're coming. That's probably it. Yeah. Anyway, um, back to reality for a moment. What should we finish with today? Well, a lot of people tell me that um, my presence on BFM is sending the station down the toilet, um, or at least uh, I, I think they are, because mostly they come on Twitter, so I don't read them. Um, so today we are actually going to end in the toilet. So this is a, a story I found on New Scientist. It's about a new nonstick toilet that would require less cleaning and less water to flush. Uh, it was designed by researchers at uh, Huazong University of Science and Technology in Wuhan. The toilet is uh, 3D printed from a combination of hydrophobic sand and plastic. The researchers have so far printed a model and tested it with a lot of different substances, uh, things like muddy water, milk, yogurt, honey, uh, starch-filled gel, and let's be charitable and say peanut butter, and <laughs> nothing actually stuck to the surfaces of the toilet. Uh, 
I feel like we've seen nonstick toilets before. Yes, but typically they're coated with something like Teflon, and this erodes over time. This new material doesn't erode, so it's coated ah. with a type of uh, silicon oil, and because of the structure, the uh, the structure of the, the sand and plastic, the oil penetrates below the surface, so it doesn't erode. In fact, the researchers sanded down the surface. And still nothing stuck uh, because that silicon coating had penetrated deep below. So you take the surface away and it's still, you know, uh, perfectly slippery. Mm. Now, while we uh, may not see this kind of device in homes anytime soon, it could end up in public restrooms, airplanes, trains, sort of high traffic locations where cleanliness and water consumption are both major issues. So that's where we leave it today. There's no rush to flush. <laughs> what a great story to end on. Thank you very much uh, for today's show, Matt. My pleasure. <laughs> now, um, if you did miss any part of the show, don't forget you can download the podcast wherever you normally listen to it from. We recommend the BFM app. It's available on the Apple App Store or Google Play. And don't forget to follow Matt on all of his socials. And of course, subscribe to his Substack newsletter. That is culturepop.substack.com. He'll be back same time, same place next week here on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.